Welcome again to Newcastle Family History Society podcasts. The Newcastle Family History Society, located on a Wabakal land in Newcastle, New South Wales, Australia, provides support for those interested in family history. This series, The Learning as Females, traces some of the history of the convict women who were sent to Newcastle on the Hunter Valley. In this episode, Mel Woodford describes the practice of assigning convict women as a means to integrate them into the community. In the early days of transportation, the female convicts were absorbed into the community, predominantly as workers, servants and wives. The numbers were not so great as to create a serious problem for the authorities. As time progressed, more and more female convicts began to arrive. Newcastle opened up as a place of secondary transportation following the attempted rebellion at Castle Hill in March of 1804. Those convicts who continued to offend would now be sent north to Newcastle, which was considered a sufficient distance from Sydney to discourage most would-be escapees. The need for domestic servants and wives increased as the free population grew. As we heard in a previous podcast, the number of female convicts in Newcastle was initially low. Only five in July of 1804, compared with 55 male convicts. The following year, this had increased to 18 female convicts and 73 males. Some of the earliest female convicts to be sent included 40-year-old Bridget Connolly, who had originally arrived aboard the transport Sugarcane in 1793. Bridget was dispatched to Newcastle in 1804 for theft. Mary Higgins was 21 when she arrived on the roller in 1803 and found herself in Newcastle in 1804, as did Susanna Danford, who was sent to Newcastle in 1805, nine years after arriving on the Marcus Swan Wallace in 1796. An interesting item of news regarding Susanna and two female companions, Mary Murphy and Anne Goulder, appeared in the Sydney Gazette of the 3rd of March 1805, which described their escape from Newcastle as a rash adventure. After suffering hunger and fatigue, they were eventually assisted in reaching Parramatta, but only after first having been robbed. Perhaps fortune smiled upon them when they encountered an Aboriginal man that one of the girls had previously been kind to. He offered his protection to the women and also gave them food. Other escapees over time had not been so fortunate. Newcastle Jail was not completed until 1818. It was built to house both male and female convicts, albeit separately. Unlike the female factory in Parramatta and the Cascades factory in Hobart, which was strictly for women. It was a two-storey building with a garden, and 
it overlooked Newcastle Beach, away from the main area of the town. The jail and female factory remained central to managing convicts, both male and female, until 1845. The Newcastle female factory next to the jail had not been constructed for the same purpose as the one in Parramatta. Both enforced moral and social standards on the women who spent time there, but the Parramatta institution also served as a factory in the true sense of the word. Manufacturing occurred there. Because there were no work-related activities for the women to keep them at the factory in Newcastle, its purpose was predominantly for discipline and dispersal. Once a woman had been assigned, her master or mistress had to oversee her work as well as her behaviour. A number of turnkeys held the position of Newcastle jailer over the years, most of whom were ex-convicts themselves. Some, such as John Kingsmill, who'd arrived in 1825 with a life sentence, which was then converted to a conditional pardon in 1828, went on to become large landowners with numerous convicts assigned to them. Some jailers had their wives hold the position of matron in the female factory. One of note, John Butler Hewson, jailer from 1832 to 1835, had Mrs Hewson as matron. Mrs Hewson was previously known as Elizabeth Hannell, who arrived aboard the Minstrel in 1812, convicted for grand larceny, and sentenced to seven years. Elizabeth was sent to Newcastle for life in 1820 for forgery. One of her three sons, James, became the first mayor of Newcastle in 1859 and held other prominent positions in the city. After the official closure of Newcastle as a place of secondary transportation for convicts in December 1823, Henry Dangar, surveyor and pastoralist, was tasked with drawing up the plans and laying out the new free town of Newcastle. Free settlement grew rapidly, with settlers keen to obtain fertile land along the Hunter River. Those who purchased land were also entitled to an allotment in Newcastle on a 21-year lease with nominal rent. This is why we frequently find the names of those who took assigned female convicts residing in more than one location seemingly at the same time. The first settlers to take up land are listed in an article on the history of Newcastle dated the 23rd of August 1895 in the Newcastle Morning Herald and Miners Advocate. Here we see the familiar names of many who applied to take assigned female convicts. John Platt of the Folly, now Waratah Mayfield West. James Weber of Patterson, now Tokal. And John Brown, who took up 500 acres at Bulwara, were named as the first to purchase land. Other familiar names were John Bingle, John Smith, James Reed, James Moody, Edward Close, Leslie Duguide, Henry Dumaric, William Dunn and William Ogilvy, along with many others. All these men and their families required convict labour to work their land and provide domestic services. 
an official written request was required and the Sydney Gazette and New South Wales Advertiser of Monday the 15th of January 1827 notified the public of the specific procedures that needed to be followed. Those applying for female convict servants were to use an application form specifically for that purpose. This would allow the most appropriate women to be assigned to each prospective applicant. It would also go some way towards ensuring the women were assigned to respectable and reasonable individuals. The form required applicants to provide the following information to the matron of the female factory at Parramatta. The number of female convicts they required and the jobs that they would be expected to undertake. The location of the applicant's property, home or premises. The number of convicts, both male and female, which were currently employed the number of convicts who had been returned and the number who had absconded, the number of convicts who have remained in service for at least a year and those who remained for upwards of three years. Where the applicant was not known to the committee, the form must be signed by a clergyman and magistrate. These forms could be obtained by applying to the factory or from the office of the colonial secretary. Once approval was granted, the selected women were dispatched from Parramatta, arriving in Newcastle aboard one of the several coastal vessels already laden with stores and equipment for the northern settlements. Newcastle Jail housed these women while the transport arrangements to their new home were organised. Assignments to the new employer and a new home could be a traumatic time for these women and for some it was especially devastating. Many of the female convicts to New South Wales were wives and mothers when they'd left their homelands. Some were permitted to bring one or more of their children with them to the colony, but this did not mean that they would stay together for any length of time after arrival. A number of the women sent north to Newcastle Jail for assignment were amongst this group. Many female convicts had other and often frequent visits to Newcastle Jail. Offences such as insolence, neglect of duty or absconding resulted in a jail sentence and they were often reassigned elsewhere afterwards. One such woman was Londoner Mary Smith, aged 21. Mary arrived aboard the transport ship Brothers in 1824 and found herself in Newcastle during the late 1830s. Mary was twice assigned to the Reverend Wilton in Newcastle, then to Mrs Squires of Anvil Creek in 1836, to Mrs Ray of Maitland in 1837, Simon Kemp of Newcastle in 1838, and also to Mrs Smith of Newcastle in 1840. Rose Smith, age 19 and also from London, was another frequent inmate of Newcastle Jail. Rose had arrived on the Mary Three in 1835 and found herself in the Hunter Valley during the mid to late 1830s. Rose was assigned to seven different masters and mistresses during a period of four years, 
Each assignment was separated by jail time. A short aside for those unfamiliar with the naming system for the convict ships. The name of the vessel, in this case the Mary Three, with the three recorded in Roman numerals, is often followed by a number in brackets which indicates which voyage it is. In this case, the name Mary Three is followed by the number five in brackets, indicating that this is the fifth voyage to Australia of this particular transport, the Mary Three. This system follows the naming pattern developed by Charles Bateson and it is in widespread use. Women who fell pregnant while on assignment were returned to the Parramatta Female Factory as the female factory attached to Newcastle Jail did not have the necessary facilities for them. 22-year-old Ellen Murphy, who arrived from County Cork on the Diamond in 1838, was one such woman. Likewise, 19-year-old Shropshire housemaid Emma Poole, who landed from the transport ship Henry Wellesley in 1836, was returned to the Parramatta Female Factory at the end of 1839. She was again assigned in the Hunter Valley at a later date. As little time as possible was actually spent in Newcastle Jail, as the female convicts were quickly reassigned. Short periods in solitary confinement were also imposed as disciplinary measures. Although even this was difficult due to the limited number of cells available and other space restrictions, female convicts also visited the jail for medical attention. Most of those who took assigned female convicts in Newcastle and the Hunter Valley exercised a certain degree of tolerance. This benefited both parties although this wasn't always the case. Given the number of assigned women who absconded, it is reasonable to assume that many women still found their lives difficult and unrewarding. Unlike those who sought employment freely, these women could not put in their notice if the position didn't suit them. Female convicts who completed a number of years' service in one position were sometimes rewarded as in the case of Ellen Partridge, who arrived on the Brothers in 1824 and who worked for Mrs Ogilvie for three years. Ellen was rewarded financially to the value of £1.15. shillings. Similarly, Margaret Sheriff was rewarded for having completed two years' service with Mrs Fennell at Hunter's River. Margaret received £1.05. shillings. In early 1831, a wave of female convicts arrived in Newcastle. These women had participated in a riot at the Parramatta Female Factory in February. Many of the women were sent north on the 5th of March and others followed over the ensuing weeks. The intention was not to incarcerate them but to disperse them as widely and as quickly as possible to assignments. Eliza Norman, aged 22 from Dublin, was one such woman, who was assigned to William Morley after having arrived in Newcastle. She found herself back in the jail in September 1831, charged with drunkenness and disorderly conduct. Some of the women who'd been involved in the 1831 riot and had been sent to Newcastle married not long into their three-year sentence. 
Such was the case with Jane Ferguson, who arrived on the Sovereign in 1829, aged just 16 years. Jane was assigned to William Harper before an application to marry was submitted on the 27th of June, 1832, to wed 38-year-old Richard Browning. The clergyman was recorded as the Reverend Wilton of Newcastle. As was generally the case, Jane, now 19, was assigned to her husband. Marriage was also often a way for a female convict to escape the system, as it generally afforded her more freedom. Sadly for many women, it was not ideal, as we encounter many examples of women absconding from their husbands, as was the case with Jane Ferguson Browning in 1833. As time progresses, we continue to see the names of female convicts now free in Newcastle and the Hunter Valley. We most often find them referred to as wives, mothers and grandmothers, sometimes owning property and occasionally becoming businesswomen of some means. We also see those who continue to offend and who find themselves in the newly built Maitland Jail which first began accepting prisoners in December 1848. Many female convicts also died young and are buried in unmarked graves, and a small number managed to return to their homelands. There will also be those whose names we'll never know, women lost in the annals of time. They are all woven into the colonial history of Newcastle and the Hunter Valley. Thank you, Mel, for painting the scene of a practice initially designed to reduce the number of convicts the government had to look after and to provide cheap labour to free settlers. A longer term and more positive impact, it seems, is to have established those family structures from which many are now descended. The next few episodes will trace the lives of some of the women who found themselves dispatched to various places in Newcastle and the Hunter Valley. Their joy, their despair their success, their demise, all rich stories of convict life and beyond in 19th century New South Wales. Be sure to join us again on Newcastle Family History Society podcasts. Listen for